Hi, I am Carol In, and you may know me as the co-producer of Analyze Asia. And in my spare time, I have made Bernard do this AMA session to celebrate the 300th episode of Analyze Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology, and media in Asia. And today, I have Bernard, the host of this podcast. Welcome, Bernard. Thank you, Carol. And finally, I have my producer on the same stage as me today. That's right, from backstage to front stage, I suppose. Before we start, do you want to talk about where you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm actually based in Shanghai, in China, but I grew up in Toronto and I relocated to China around a year and a half ago. I currently work as a interpreter, so I do simultaneous and consecutive interpreting between Mandarin and English. But I also edit podcasts in my spare time. And I think one of the podcasts that you edit is Tech Bus China, right? That's right. I am the founding producer for Tech Bus China. Because I used to work as a technology journalist for Pan Daily, and I probably have to thank Ying Lu and Rima because that was how we got in touch, and subsequently I got Carol to come on board to be my producer. That's right. I really enjoy listening to as well as editing podcasts, so I'm really glad that I can continue doing so with Analyze Asia. So, how are we going to start the AMA? Probably I should start off with some major announcements. That's right, because you have quite a few surprises for our listeners. I have at least four things that I'll be announcing today. The first is actually I'll be dropping the title of the show, "Analyze Asia" with Bernard Leung, to just "Analyze Asia," and I think that change will come propagating until all the internet cash will change. And I think starting from this episode, I will actually be dropping the episode number from the title itself. So from now on, you're not going to see episode three hundred, three hundred and one. That will be subsumed into the synopsis of the episode. And on top of that, I am planning for at least a three to six month break. But you will still be seeing every episode from now to the break ends. And the reason for that is that I am currently in personal transition, and my family is expecting the third kid. We're going to have a very nice baby girl coming in August. Congratulations! And I already have two kids, and as each additional kid comes, the amount of time I have is actually getting less and less. To be able to find five hours. Every week to do this has really been a very challenging thing, and that's also the reason why I got Carol on board to be my producer so that I can have some time. Now, those are the personal pieces. So I'm going to come with much more interesting things. There will be two things that we're going to be talking in the next few months, and you're going to gradually see what we're going to be announcing. We're going to be doing a premium content project. And I won't be speaking about what that premium content project is going because I'm still in the midst of working the script and getting the right people to be the host of this particular ten episode series. It's not going to be the type of weekly thing. It's just going to be a short series, very similar to what Michael Lewis have done against the rules, or Malcolm Gladwell has done revisionist history, or maybe the closest. Is the dropout recently that was done by ABC News? So it's going to be a premium content, but I can tell you, it's actually going to be talking about one of the big internet giants of China, which is Tencent. And we're going to be doing a Kickstarter campaign, very likely, and we definitely will need to raise funds in order to have the podcast host to be actually paid and also to pay Carol for her work as well. So that is the premium content project. Very exciting! I'm very much looking forward to bringing it to the audience. 
That's right. And the last thing that I would want to talk about is the live show. So we have already confirmed the first live show, which is actually on the fifth anniversary that happens to be on the 2nd of September. You'll be in WeWork Singapore at Suntech City. And we will be selling tickets. We'll be charging for the live show. And after that, we'll probably be going to Hong Kong in another three to six months time because technically that is when my third kid is probably about six to nine months old where I feel more comfortable to travel all of Singapore. So I do need help to figure out where I should be doing the live show in Hong Kong. So for any of our audience from Hong Kong, if you have ideas for venue, if you have ideas on what we should do, please send us email or tweet to us or find any way to give us ideas. Hello at analyze.asia is the best way to get to me and Carol. I think the live show is such a great idea. And I just thought of a name for it. It'll be Around Asia with Analyze Asia because it's going to be hosted in different locations around Asia. I think it'll be really cool to meet our audience from all over. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to that. And it will be good because I think they were finally be able to know who are the people behind that. And I'm still working through the format of the live show. So there are some different ideas that I've gotten from various people who I've spoken to. And probably I should also thank my wife, uh, Yuying, for actually helping me to secure the venue for WeWork Singapore. Yay! Yay. Okay, so that goes to all the major announcements that I have. And so even though I'm taking a break, but you may just suddenly hear Carol hosting the show because I'll be actually in the next couple of weeks ramp up the content production so that there will be enough shows to take on that three to four months of break. So stay tuned. That's right. So you will still be hearing Bernard's voice all the time, even though he will be taking a, a break and it will be as if he is here the entire time. But and changing diapers too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Bernard, are you ready for all the questions for this AMA session? Yes, I am. First of all, where do I get the AMA question? So we got it from Twitter. We got it from our Telegram channel. And we also got it for private messaging. So these are people who actually knew. And I'm very surprised that they're also listeners to the podcast. And hence, they dropped me different questions. And that's where we have. Yeah, we have quite a few people who ask a lot of questions and I'll be reading out the questions and who asked them. And maybe Bernard can also just introduce these people a little bit if you know them. Yep. All right. So if you're ready, I'm going to start with the first question. Mm. So the first question is from Colin Charles. And Colin asked, you're relatively well-traveled. How do your travels shape your lens when it comes to analyzing Asia? I will presume travel gives you an edge, but what top three things have you noted from travels that permeate from or diffuse to Asia? That is actually a very interesting question. Just before I start, Colin is a longtime friend of mine and he is actually one of the best database experts in Asia. Probably he travels a lot more as I do. And for myself, in my recent role, I actually became the head of Airbus Aero, which is actually the drone business for Airbus in the Asia Pacific. So I travel a lot. And part of my mandate was actually to do business development and thinking about how to go to market into different countries. So in these travels, what they have taught me are three things. I think the first is actually you can break the Asia Pacific market in different ways. 
And that actually helps you to figure out whether your product or service can work in this particular market. So the first way to think of it is regional and geographical. I think these days when somebody tells you he's the head of Asia Pacific, it is very likely that it omits China, India, Australia, and New Zealand. That person probably 10 years ago, it would probably be everything includes China and India, which is impossible to work on. But these days, if you think about Asia as a region, there are two big countries, which is India and China. They should be separate by itself because they're both at least above 1 billion population. And then there is Southeast Asia, uh, which comprise of what we call the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or what some people call ASEAN. So when you hear the word ASEAN, A-S-E-A-N, that means Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. The second thing you want to look at when it comes to how to look at Asia is that you need to differentiate between what I call city-states and emerging economies. So you could travel to mainly the major cities in Asia, for example, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taipei, Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta. You could actually build businesses around these cities. Even, I mean, in China, you will talk about what is called the tier one cities. The Chinese has a very nice way of saying it. It's called Beijing, Guangzhou, which is Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen. So these major cities typically could actually have a very big running economy. And then the last part, which I thought is interesting to me, is whether these particular Asia countries are more builder and craftsmen of their own technology against other nations who tend to import or be very friendly to product and services from other parts of the world. So if you look at very carefully, for example, China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, they are very, very well known for the ability to be able to build things themselves. They are very craftsman-like. They have evolved and become technology giants by themselves. I mean, today, if you think about in the space that I work on, such as drones, China is actually the most advanced, maybe followed by Israel. And then when you think about gaming, you think about Japan, right? Being the home to most of the console gaming companies. And of course, people know Japan SoftBank or Uniqlo, which people know fast retailing. And then you have Korea, which is also has cosmetics, healthcare, and for example, manufacturing supply chain. You think of some companies like Samsung, LG, and many others. And of course, there are also car companies like Toyota. And you see that in the Northeast countries, these companies have their own tech. Whereas in Southeast Asia, it's mainly imported tech. And India, for example, is mainly services driven. So once you start breaking the entire Asia market into these different lenses, you start to see these trends coming. The second point that I want to make very quickly is that the development of any startup within the ecosystem of the Asian country is very dependent on the specialization of the country. So if you look at blockchain tech, what is emerging to me is that blockchain gaming is working in Japan and Korea. And then if you look at the blockchain applied to financial markets, it tends to be happening in Singapore and Hong Kong and to a certain extent in China. So that is the thing that people would need to think about when they want to build whatever startup within the countries in Asia because they need to think about what the country's specialization really is. And the last bit is we're moving towards the Asian century. By the way, if you look at the quality earnings of most high growth companies, Asia Pacific is the fastest growing country. And of course, some of the growth is mainly powered by China, but we are also very vulnerable. One big vulnerability is the US-China trade war today. This actually happened before, but in a very different context with Japan. Japan was the rising power in the 1980s. People know of Sony, people know about the Walkman. 
they were Toyota of the lean manufacturing, which people now use it and turn it into the lean startup model. Will history repeat for China like the way for Japan? And these are trade wars and political risks that will come in play when you think about Asia in a larger context. And if you want to know why this is the Asian century, you should also refer back to our episode 281, where Berner interviewed Parag about why the future is Asia. That's right. And now our second question, which is one that I am very curious about the answer to as well. So Yuri Wolvovitz asked, what are the three likely outcomes of the U.S.-China trade war? Okay. Please indicate the winner and loser together with the timeline. Wow, that's a really tough question. Yes. First of all, Uri was my classmate from Singularity University from the class of 2016 in the Global Solutions Program. He is working on autonomous vehicles with a very well-known chip company who I shall not name. So um, he's a great chess player, by the way. He's probably have thought about these questions and he probably in his mind, he has already constructed all the moves. So I'm going to give him the answer by thinking in terms of game theory. So if you create a prisoner's dilemma scenario for the current US-China trade war, it will go three ways. The first is US wins the trade war, China loses. That would mean that what will happen is based on the principle of who has better allies. So if you think in terms of the geopolitical scenario of the US, they have Europe and Japan. These are actually countries with very high GDPs. So these will be the countries that China needs to trade with in order to grow their economy. So if US can influence all its partners, as what they did with Huawei, for example, with the export ban, they have already get Google to cave with Android to stop supplying Android to Huawei and then ARM, which is a British company, to stop supplying new chips to Huawei. So in that scenario, if all the allies will join forces with the US, they will win the trade war and then the China will lose that. So that's one scenario. But the second is China wins the trade war. Now, how does that happen? I think it's going to be dependent on how the local US domestic people view whether they're suffering from the tariffs that's going to be imposed. I think the question actually comes to who is more resilient. I think actually on that question, I have always trying to explain to some of my friends in the US that here's the situation. Most of the people probably above 40s have gone through the Cultural Revolution. They're probably born in the 1960s, 70s, and they've probably gone through famine and poverty. So there's a lot of resilience that's built. And if you are talking about trade war, you need to have a lot of resilience to handle this. And I think of both countries, I think China actually has a strength to do that. That means they can hold it longer. And it's just a question of who suffers more and then who wins by being able to take it. So I think that's the outcome too. It's also very likely to happen. And the last, it's actually a women's situation for both. Both take a step back, compromise on what they allow, and then both wins. That is, of course, what the rest of the world wants. And then, of course, there's the small box in the two-by-two two game, which is both losers. And funny, you will ask, who is going to win if both losers? It's actually the rest of the world. Because with tariffs imposed and with all the trade routes, the whole supply chain will need to be rerouted to all the different parts of the world. So you might see the rise of Southeast Asia, the rise of the Latin American economies in South America, or even 
in places like Europe where it becomes where they can actually be able to compete again because the focus has always been is either the US or China. But in the fourth outcome where both losers, then it's going to be pretty interesting for the rest of the world. Pretty interesting indeed. And it's really interesting how you broke it down to the four possible outcomes. And I definitely hope that it would be the win-win situation, but we never know. And of course, we're going to be covering it here in Analyze Asia as well as it progresses. Now, the next two questions come from JJ Chai. And the first question that JJ asks is, how would one assign weights to the factors that result in startups' success levels? What share is business model versus sector versus founders versus luck, including externalities? So before that, I probably would say JJ Chai is a friend of mine. He's currently the senior vice president for a fast-growing startup in Southeast Asia called Carousel. And before that, he's actually the managing director for Airbnb for Southeast Asia. So he's a very, very well-qualified startup operator or even corporate executive in the region. So um, I think the way how I will answer this question is I think in terms of probabilities. And here's how I'm going to assign it. I'll assign 50%. Let's say if I have 100% and I want to assign to the factors that results in the startup success levels. So I will say 50% is the team. Um, well, if you have a A-class team with a B-class idea, will beat a B-class team with an A-class idea. So that's the first thing I will assign that weight on. So the team is very important. The balance of the team need not necessarily be everybody uh, alphas. It could be there are people who could grind it out. That's why in Silicon Valley, they always talk about the three things, right? You need the hacker, the hustler, and the hipster. Because the hacker is the guy who gives the technology. The hustler is the guy who sells. And the hipster is the guy who creates the culture. So the team is very important. The 30% is going to be what I call the customers and product service market fit. That means if you have the correct product and service that actually are what customers want, then you can actually be able to drive your success level faster. That means more people using it. And then the remaining 20%, I will call it external environment, could be the political or commercial situations, or whether they have certain infrastructure like maybe for transportation would be roads, for financial infrastructure, for example, whether they are bank or unbanked people, or maybe in certain externalities, we will call it luck. When you think about that, then you can come to answer the second question, right? What share is the business model versus sector versus founder versus luck? I don't think that there is actually an answer to which of it could actually work better. But I think ultimately what really wins out is that the founders have to be in the right time and the right place. Then they attack the correct sector, probably adjacent to what the traditional business are doing. And then they have a business model that's asymmetric against the traditional business that if they try to replicate it, they will lose money and then they cannot answer to their shareholders and then they will start to lose faith and then you are able to go in a, what is called a hockey stick growth. So I think that would be how I would see that share of it. Right. And maybe JJ knew that you were going to place 50% of the weight on the team, which is why in his next question, he asked, what patterns do you see in successful founders in terms of personality traits? I would just think about three traits which I gather across 
from different people who I met who I would term as successful founders. They're very focused. They're very well read. And they have either a very high degree of empathy. They speak less, but they listen a lot more. Or they are just totally psychotically driven to get something done and they speak less and they have no empathy. So it's either all of that situation. Interesting. Okay. And our next question comes from Hien Go. And Hien asks, who's going to win? Grab or Gojek? So Hien Go is a venture capitalist in Southeast Asia. He is also an early investor of Gojek. So if you think about the right hailing walls, all the companies under SoftBank, you have Uber, Didi in China, Grab in Southeast Asia, Ola in India, and of course, Karim now in Middle East. They are all invested within that group itself. So Gojek came from nowhere in Indonesia. And so of course, they have now done very well in Indonesia and now they're going to come in to compete with Grab. So Grab, even though Uber has left the market, they're now facing competition again from a local entity. So the answer to the question, who's going to win? The answer is I don't know. However, I have some metrics that I think I can access who wins. So given that these two companies are talking so much about the super app, the first question I'm going to access is, does the super app created by either Grab or Gojek creates another 50 companies that can build on their ecosystem? So how do I make the assessment? So I think about a super app like WeChat. WeChat has spun off many, many successful companies in China. The most well-known is Didi. Probably also know of Meituan Dianping. Even Jingdong also built on top of the ecosystem that was able to drive their market share in terms of e-commerce to be able to be suitably competitive against Alibaba. Then the second question I want to ask is, who is able to conquer Indonesia? Currently, Gojek has the advantage. They are very well integrated in Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest population of Southeast Asia, probably constitute half of the 600 million population. They have at least 300 million in Indonesia, plus minus some numbers here and there. So the question is, can Grab win a market that may or may not be nationalistic? You probably would know that you go into China and you fight with a China local entrepreneur. It's like a gladiatorial contest. You go to India, it's the same. So the question is, would Indonesia be nationalistic against a foreign player coming into the market? I think that's the second thing I'm going to access. And the last is that I think both of them are very vertically integrated into the financial services. Whoever can control the larger share of the market in terms of financial services, be it P2P lending, be it payment like WeChat Pay or Alipay, I think that would be how I'm going to access who is going to win. Cool. And the next question is from Arnold Bonzom. How was the startup ecosystem in Singapore and Southeast Asia when you were involved at sgentrepreneurs.com, which is around 2005 to 2013? That's right. I came back from the UK. I spent eight years in the United Kingdom, and then I come back in 2005. At that point in time, when there was no TechCrunch, there was no... I think TechCrunch was already formed in Silicon Valley, but there was no TechCrunch equivalent in Singapore. So I set up SG Entrepreneurs when I was still an adjunct professor for the NUS Entrepreneurship Center. And it was actually touted as the dumbest idea ever. But surprisingly, this dumb idea was able to allow me to exit together with my co-founder, Gwendolyn, who actually we sold the startup to Tech in Asia, which probably a lot of people would know these days. 
so in those days, it was interesting. There was no startup ecosystem. It was a very small community. People generally think that you are a freak if you are doing a startup. Why would you join a startup where you can work in very big multinational corporations? I think that is the startup ecosystem, whether it's in Singapore or any part of Southeast Asia. The big multinationals tend to have a whole of the major talent. At that point in time, there was seed and pre-series A funding. I did a fast growth startup with Joey Ito, who is now the head of MIT Lab as my former investor to this company called Chopbot, which rise spectacularly and falls spectacularly. So part of the reason why it didn't work out was because of the lack of venture funding and also the lack of talent. So I think the startup ecosystem then was very, very small, very, very niche, and nobody is interested. And I think the next question will be much more interesting. That's right, because it seems like a lot of things have changed. There's a lot more funding and definitely a lot more talent. So Lisa and Cal wants to know, please share a story on how the tech scene has changed in this part of the world since you launched the first episode. And I checked, the first episode was published on September 2nd, 2014, almost five years ago. That's right. So something happened during 2013 to 2014. The funding landscape has changed significantly and we have actually significant technology companies that can actually expand into the region. And in the case of Grab, they actually managed to break the mold that they can actually expand into Southeast Asia. And that's also the first time we have seen a company locally that can actually beat Uber as well. And I think they took a lot of inspiration from Didi in China when Didi China forced Uber to get out of China. So this has actually changed as well. And what used to be very formidable US companies that will come into Asia and crush the local companies, that mindset has totally shifted in the last few years. I would just put it in a very different way. If you think from 2005 to 2013, probably even up to 2015 to 2016, a lot of companies in Asia would aspire to be the Amazon of Japan, the Amazon of China, the Amazon of Southeast Asia, or you want to be the Google of Southeast Asia, the Facebook of Southeast Asia, you fill in the blanks. Nowadays, I think after 2016, that mindset has changed. In fact, I'm hearing startup founders these days talking to me, saying that they want to be the Meituan Tianping of Southeast Asia. They want to be the Tencent of Southeast Asia. They want to be the Alibaba of Southeast Asia. So you can see that the landscape has totally changed. We don't look to the U.S. companies for inspiration anymore. We're actually looking for inspiration from the Chinese companies as well, and even Japanese companies. You've got more Series A and Series B funding, and it's now a bigger community, and there's a lot more conferences. There used to be only, I think, E27 and Tech in Asia conferences. These days, you have RISE conference, which happens every year in Hong Kong. There's a bigger community in Actually, this is the fun part. When I started the podcast, I started to be able to get the different ecosystem players of each of these communities and get them on the show. So I find that the community has grown bigger. That's right. And that's partly what drew me to move to China as well, because the tech scene was just developing so quickly here and I was very much drawn by what's happening in Asia. So I just want to tell you a little bit more about Anna Bonzam and Lisa Enkel. I'll start with Lisa first. Lisa was the co-founder of Red, a very well-known startup from Sweden who eventually expands to Silicon Valley. These days, she's a partner of Antler, 
living in Singapore with her husband, who happens to be the first employee and former CTO of Spotify. They are both on my show previously. And Arnold Bonzum, he used to work for 500 startups, but he also have a lot of interesting side projects. He has the map of the money and he compiles the best reports that you need to know about venture capital, different startup ecosystems in Asia Pacific. So he's a person who you need to connect to if you want to understand the market better. Well, it seems like Arnold is not only good at putting together reports, he's also very good at coming up with questions because we have quite a few questions for Arnold that you have to answer. Now, the next question that Arnold asks is, why did you decide five years ago to launch a podcast? So the one thing that I believe that no other Asian tech websites believe is that you can do an interesting podcast to tell a story. So prior to Analyze Asia, I actually have a podcast called This Week in Asia with four friends. The problem is that Skype connection is extremely bad. Every episode is a nightmare and no one wants to do the editing other than me. But we have very fun people who came on the show during that period of time. That was with Daniel Cervantes, Microphone and Smitty, who's now a VC for Seed Plus and John Lim as well. So I decided that maybe the right format to do a podcast was actually a one-on-one. Maybe I drew a lot of inspiration from Horace Didu with The Critical Path where someone asked him a question. So the one-to-one format actually started appealing to me. So I decided to launch a podcast. I call it Analyze Asia because I wanted to get out of covering startups, but actually covering the more important businesses or trends that actually dominate the Asia-Pacific market. And if you were to think of at that point in time, China is rising and not many people really understood the companies in China. So the fun part of it for me is actually to gather intelligence around the region. So I decided that, hey, since I have some time and I only have a kid, so I will start the podcast and lo and behold, we got to the 300 episode today after five years. Oh, and a half years, sorry. Yay! The next question is also for Arnold, and it's a question that I've always wondered, honestly. What's your secret sauce for shipping one episode every week? If you ask me, it's perseverance and greed, and I just want to do a high-quality episode one at a time. So one of the things I don't think about is competition. I don't think about whether how many rival podcasts out there. I just work one episode at a time, and then I compound my growth also one episode at a time. So when I first gave the talk about the idea to one of my former investors, the first thing he told me, Bernard, it is a dumb idea to do a podcast. Believe it or not. And he listed down three things, okay? You need to be good looking, you need to have a good voice, and you probably won't last more than 10 episodes. I just want to say that you don't need to be good looking to host a podcast. No, no, you have to, you have to. And then you need to have the correct accent, which actually is true. One thing I do envy some of my other fellow podcaster friends is that they have a very beautiful American accent. But the accent itself also becomes a strength because I find that some of the fans to my show and some of them being CEOs of very powerful companies, they listen to my podcast. And when they see me, they would just tell me, hey, you know, it's great to at least have an Asian voice for a change. That's right. So that's the secret sauce. Just do it one at a time and just want to make sure that the quality is good. Perseverance and grit. That's right. Well then, how do you build your deal flow of guests? Also another really great question for Arnold. Simple. I have a spreadsheet. I've already... But before I get the guest list on the spreadsheet, 
I want to work out what is the narrative or the story I want to tell. So whenever I invite a guest, I always think about what is the story I want to tell. It's always about storytelling. That's right. And how do you reach out to them? How do you identify the best channel time blurb to convince them to join?、Mm, strangely, for every one famous guest I have on the show, I probably had nine failures in get convincing nine other people to come on the show. You may be surprised, but sometimes very famous people you can actually get by just email them at the email that they put on the contact us page, or send them a LinkedIn message. I think one of the best ways to do is actually getting a referral from someone who knows them, so that would also be interesting. I will tell you one interesting story that a lot of people probably didn't know. So some people ask me, how did I get Vijay Shekhar Sharma, who is the CEO of Paytm, an Indian unicorn that's funded by Alibaba and SoftBank, on the show? And that was before he even got that big. And the story was actually I was doing a deal with the venture capitalist in India who was funding them. And then when I was in India, the VC invited me to dinner and asked me a very strange question. He said, "Can you tell us about your background?" So I told, "Oh, I started as a startup founder, and then I decided to join a multinational corporation so that I can learn the skills of being a better manager." And then they looked at me with the strangest look and said, "Oh, no wonder you're so easy that we can get this deal done in less than three, four rounds of negotiation." Then I said, "Yeah, of course." You are the VC. I used to be a startup founder. I know how you think. I know what I want, and I know what you want, and then we find a way to meet up. So they asked me, "Is there anything that can help me?" And I actually did some research on this VC firm, and it turns out that Paytm was one of their portfolio companies. And the VC who hosted me the lunch in India was one of the board members of Paytm. So what will you do? Can you introduce me to Vijay, and I can get the interview? And the answer is, of course, done deal. Of course, a referral works wonders. Yeah. So, believe it or not, but I actually also want to tell a lot of people that actually during the course of the three hundred episodes, some of the guests who comes on my show, actually I've done business deals with them. For example, Malaysia from Western Union, we actually done a project together which was very successful between Western Union and Singapore. So when I asked her to come on the show, it was easy because we know each other pretty well and we have done business together. It definitely helps if you already have professional relationship with these people. Yeah. So Arnold also wants to know how do you select these guests, heuristics and due diligence. So a couple of ways. I think the the first is usually there's a referral. So most of my Chinese guests actually came through a referral from a gentleman by the name of Matthew Benjamin, who's a longtime fan of the show. So I'm going to thank him because that was how I got to know Matthew Brennan, Eva Xiao. And a couple of others, and then through them, I go to the other sort of thought leaders or people within China that can actually get to interview. So that's the first part. The second part is actually I would think of a storyline, and I want to get the person who is the most well versed in that subject. And I will actually do some due diligence by doing Google searches on them, find out whether they have YouTube appearances, podcast appearances, or even in conferences. So I could select some of these guests through that. So that's actually mostly how I do it. And I think sometimes some guests are obviously you would love to get them on, but it's actually extremely difficult because you have to go through their comms. You got to go through a lot of hoops and jumps before you can actually get there. So that's how I usually select them. And continuing with Arnold's question on guests, 
How do you decide if you should invite one more time the same guest? I have a pretty simple heuristic. If I can make a connection with the guest to make an interesting conversation and learn something from him or her, I would definitely invite this person back. I think some of my guests may not thought about it. Actually, if they want to come again, they are always welcome back on the show. Yeah, and I think I really enjoy these kind of conversations too. For example, when you spoke with Joyce Yang about blockchain twice, I really enjoyed listening to both the first and second episode. The second episode also when you hear more updates, etc., because you're already kind of familiar with this guest and also their specialty. That's right, and I think Matthew Brennan is still the highest recurring guest for Analyze Asia now. After Samir Singh, who I used to get on the show. It's just that I haven't found the right topic to talk to Samir Singh. He's actually the first guest on my show. That's right. How could I forget about Matthew? He's definitely one of my favorite people to edit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, who are the five people that you wish to have one day on the show? Well, I don't think in terms of five, ten people. I actually only want two groups of people, which I still do not have. What I call the movers and shakers. Of course, everybody would like to have Jack Ma, Masayoshi San, Hiroshi Mikatani, Ponima. But I have to do the interview in Chinese with Ponima, so I will have to settle for Martin Lau of Tencent. I also would like to go with the Asian champions. For example, there would be people like Tony Fernandez, who's the founder of Air Asia, the largest budget airline in the region, Anthony Tan and Huiling Tan, who is the founders of Grab and Hadim from Gojek. So I think most of my challenge. Of getting the guests are usually in either the mover shakers category or the Asian champions category. So for any listeners out there, if you can have a connection to these people, please let me know because I have difficulty at least on some of them going through their comms is extremely difficult. I bet, and I will love to be able to edit their conversations one day as well. And so Arnold is asking all the important questions because he also asks, where do you see Analyze Asia in five years? Except releasing the six hundredth episode, of course. I hope it will become a sustainable lifestyle business with a production team delivering high quality content. I think the question of high quality content could be in the form of even becoming a site that actually do analysis. My original vision was actually to become something like the Economist, but it started with the podcast and then subsequently extend into other media channels. But lately, I think I've also changed. My view. I'm thinking now. I've learned the podcast way of telling stories, and I actually want to double down on that to figure out how to tell better stories, build premium content as we have been working on one, to be able to build a more revenue generating business. I think that is what is more interesting to me, at least in the next five years. And there's another question that people always ask me: When would I stop? And I often tell them that if by episode five hundred or one thousand, I couldn't find a sustainable business model, then I would just stop. Right, and I think I already know the answer to the next question, which is also for Arnold, where he asks, "Would you like to make your podcast a full time business?" The answer is, of course, yes. Yes. <laughs> and so, what are three fun facts about Analyze Asia? Okay. My first and longtime sponsor, Autism by Ideal Workspace, is actually my wife's company, and I'm just doing it to see if anybody is interested in doing advertising on the podcast. Just to let everybody know, I have 30k subscribers, about 2.5 million downloads, and about 
300 episodes. So I think I have a significant share of my share. The reason why I don't read Blue Apron ads or Casper ads is because the people who listen to this podcast will probably be in the same demographic to the same people who will listen to Recode Decode. I think we share a very common audience. So I didn't want to do that. The second fun fact is that the fans of this podcast or the audience of this podcast always like to surprise me when I'm giving keynotes in conferences, whether in Asia or Europe. I can't name names, but when I was speaking on drones in the World Economic Forum, a couple of CEOs of regional Asian companies came up to me and said, hey, I listened to your podcast. That's always a pleasant surprise. Yeah, that's always a surprise. And the first thing I usually ask them is, what do you not like? And then they will look at me and say, well, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit more on this topic that I'm interested in. And then maybe you could increase your load of episodes. And there was once the comment they gave to me was the most interesting one was, why don't you talk about what you do? That's true. Yeah. So the answer to that question is, it's not that I don't want to, but I want to maintain a, a very separate profile from my professional corporate life with the podcast life. Understood. And that's the reason why I don't talk a lot about what I do. And the third fun fact is that actually through Analyze Asia, I was given opportunities. I give two keynote speeches on the Asian market and a fireside chat to three Fortune 500 leadership meetings in Singapore because the people who were organizing those meetings were interested in my perspectives through my podcast. That's right. And through that, you'll be amazed to hear that almost probably every month I will get a hedge fund or institutional fund manager that asks me about Asian company. That's so cool. And sometimes it also gives me ideas for what stories to tell. So that in turn also gave me a lot of business opportunities and helping others at the same time. That's right, because the more you do, the more you learn, the more people you meet and connect with, and the podcast will just get better and better as well. Mm, that's right. So Arnold also asks, what are the three podcasts on startups that you love listening? Specifically on startups, the first one will be acquired by Ben and David, which showcase mergers and acquisitions and IPOs of interesting tech companies, whether from US or in other parts of the world. The second is the startup podcast by Gimlet Media. And the last one is Recode Decode by Kara Swisher. I'll add in one of my favorites too. I really like um, How I Built This with Guy Raz. That's right. All right. So those were all the questions from Arnold. And then now we have a few questions from Winthia Go. Winthia asks, through five years of interviewing the insiders, disruptors, innovators, founders, and investors, what has changed over the years and what has stayed the same? Mm. Winthia Go is currently the head of Omnichannel for NTUC Enterprise, which is very big in Singapore. But before that, she was, I think, the chief digital officer for Asia for Aviva, which is a very well-known insurance company. So on her question about the last five years, what has changed and what has stayed the same? I think the same for me, the entrepreneurs are still idealistic and wants to change the world. The VCs are still looking for 100x return for their startups. The difference, I think the startup community is becoming very mainstream. And I think that there is a perception of building sustainable business it seems that everybody wants growth, 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 but they forgot the law of business gravity is that ultimately it is still decided by whether your company is profitable. And Winthia also asks, 
which guests left the strongest impression, for better or for worse, and why? Uh, of course, definitely, I would say Vijay Shekhar Sharma, who is the CEO of Paytm. That's because I interviewed before he got really big. And I made a comment after I interviewed him to a couple of friends who listened to the podcast. I said, I think I've just interviewed the Jack Ma from India. Wow. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he will be. So I'm convinced I'm right now. Of course, we will see where Paytm is going. There are a few other guests. Actually, I would tell you that a lot of guests leave different types of impression for me. One of the most significant one is Horace Didu, founder of Asimco, now the Micromobility Podcast, and he's also one of the best analysts on Apple in the world. And I had a very good opportunity of actually having dinner with him when he was in Singapore. And the interesting part of the story that he's so insightful to the point that I was driving him to the airport and I wish that he could stay one more day in Singapore to talk about transportation. So that really left a very deep impression, whether it was on a podcast interview or whether I see him in real life. I also want to make sure that I highlight some of the interesting women guests on the show. I find that the conversation with Helen Dush and Uma Thamer-Bolasangam from the Leaning Singapore Movement been very interesting because that was one of the most difficult interviews that I have to be prepared. And the good news was that my wife apparently got the feedback from a listener to my podcast that actually the questions were pretty well-framed because I think it's very difficult to ask difficult questions on women leadership. And I took a long time to actually prepare for the interview. And the way how they answered me did leave me a very deep impression. Mm -hmm. And last question from Winthia is if you are to summarize what you have learned from all the people you have interviewed, what would it be? I think the thing that I typically get, and it's very common for most of them, is always be learning. And then what comes after that is actually to know what you're doing and how you're going to make decisions and get to the next stage. Always be learning. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I've been learning a lot through listening and editing the podcast as well. So I also want to thank Bernard for the opportunity for me to learn through the podcast. I have to thank you for being a good producer to kick my butt when it's required. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to produce kick-ass podcasts. And I always tell Carol to be harder on me so that at least I know that I can improve the next time around. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the good thing about getting a producer on the show for myself. That's right. I mean, I think that's all the questions from your lovely listeners. And then we will go to the last bit of the show. Where can our audience find us? They can find us everywhere, right? <laughs> that's right. Literally everywhere where you can find podcasts. Oh, I should probably just add one more channel that they can find us now. I just discovered that our podcast is on Luminary in the US. Cool. The podcast player that plays premium podcasts in their player. And surprisingly, we are one of the podcasts inside. That's really cool. Yeah. So I probably have to thank Carol for coming on the show to be the host of the show today. And of course, you can find us on every channel out there and tweet to us and give us your best feedback. And most importantly, support us because we're going to have two big projects coming. One is the live show for the fifth anniversary. And the second is going to be the premium content project, which we are planning for a very interesting story and we hope to be continuing to deliver you better content, better guests, and better quality episodes as it comes. Thank you very much. 
Yes, stay tuned. And it was my absolute pleasure. And thank you so much, Bernard, for having me on air.